Happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney has ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnson directed movie, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan of the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Welcome back. And I'm today's guest, Brian Fees. I'm a writer and a cartoonist. I've done comics uh, called Mom's Cancer, The Last Mechanical Monster, and relevant to today's minute, Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow? As I've said before, I'll say it again, that is one of my top all-time favorite graphic novels by anyone. It's actually, there's a three-way tie for first place, and you're right there, right up there, Brian. And, and Jim, I love that Brian is comfortable enough now that we just let him introduce himself. Yes. He's, it's, you know, you do you, I do me, and then it's, oh, we have a guest. <laughs> I'm an old pro. <laughs> Tell yeah, us who you are. You're right on, you're right on top of things. And we're, <laughs> well, we're talking here in the, the late uh, 30s, which is uh, uh, the, the era of one of the, com- the, one of the topics that we've been talking about is the New York World's Fair, which would be coming up the following year. Um, but Hal, I believe you had something else to talk about before we got there. Uh, sure, because you know there's just not enough minutes uh, in a minute to talk about each minute. <laughs> apparently, uh, one thing we we talked uh, yesterday's episode about uh, one of the desk models, so sort of the blink and you'll miss it. Uh, that uh, the Lockheed Electra that uh, uh, right about this time Hughes was getting ready to fly around the world and set a record. Then, uh, as we pan around, we see another desk, desk model on the far right, and it looks uh, at first blush it looks a lot like the XF11, which we saw pretty prominently in the the movie The Aviator. And, it, and when I first saw that, I thought, well, that's okay, but that's really, that's, that's a few too many years too early uh, to be there. That airplane really didn't start being developed until about 1943. And so I thought, well, okay, is that a little hiccup? But then I dug a little bit deeper and came across an airplane I hadn't really known much about, and that was the Hughes DX-2, uh, which the XF-11 was actually based on. So it's a twin engine. It was originally meant to be a five-crew fighter bomber. They eventually scaled it down to two but uh, he was right there working on that uh, in uh, actively building it in like early 39. Uh, so not at all unreasonable that uh, he might have a little design uh, design model sitting there on the on the desk. So well done, Joe Johnston. And uh, once again, I'm sorry for doubting you. <laughs> wow. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, the era that. Uh, Howard Hughes was working in and, and why he would have that picture of the 39 World's Fair. This whole thing seemed to be focused on getting the, the X3 to the World's Fair. And Brian, this this was a this is pretty much in your in your uh, wheelhouse. The uh, your book, the uh, whatever happened, to, whatever happened to the world of tomorrow is all about the 1931 uh, 1939 World's Fair, which uh, of, of which this is a part. And it's two key. Uh, architectural features, the Trilon and Paris Theater. Um, yeah, we, we see those on the cover of the uh, the, the portfolio, the folio that uh, Hughes throws in the in the fireplace, and um, those those were the symbols of the Thirty Nine World's Fair. It's it's the the Trilon is the very tall pyramid. The Paris Sphere is a very large hollow sphere that had inside it a uh, a little exhibit of the city of tomorrow. You could uh, you could go inside and look at, and uh, these were just iconic. I, 39 World's Fair branded these shapes on everything, and they were very—they were deliberately designed to be very evocative and symbolic of things like uh, male and female, of of uh, nature and industry, of uh, you know what, two two 
two contrasting shapes and sizes that would come together to build something greater than the sum of their parts. That, that was that was symbolism here, and we see that right on the cover. And that was what the 39 World's Fair was all about. 39 World's Fair, its motto was the world of tomorrow. And if you got to the 1939 World's Fair, they'd give you a little button. I got one that says, I have seen the future. And um, in, I'm looking at my, mine right now. And I've got, I've got mine too, right on my board here beside me. Um, in my mind, and this is not an original observation, but the reason I started my book, Whatever Happened in the World of Tomorrow, at the 39 World's Fair is I think it was the dividing line between old America and modern America, between agrarian America and kind of the, the more modern, mechanized, industrial America. Uh, this is the place where people saw their first television sets. Uh, they had fax machines there. We think of fax machines being a very modern invention. They had one at the 39 World's Fair. They had uh, a, a robot, which wasn't much of a robot. It was really more of an audio-animatronic thing. But it, it looked like a robot, and it would uh, you know, answer your questions and smoke cigarettes and stuff that we all want robots to do. <laughs> um, it's, it's famous for its Futurama exhibit, which uh, in the spirit of kind of the later Disney exhibitions, you'd sit in a little car and be towed through a... Uh, a panorama of the world of tomorrow, uh, starting out in the countryside and moving to the cities of uh, 16, 32-lane highways going into 300-story skyscrapers that all looked like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. And it was just just an astounding, amazing thing that, um, in my thesis, took all those millions of people who went into it with different views of what their lives and future were going to be like and sent them out the door with the same vision and future of what their lives were going to be like. And I, I think out of the 39 World's Fair, you get things like uh, the Space Age, I think, comes right out of there. Um, computerization comes right out of there. All the things we sort of associate, not just with the 50s and 60s and 70s, what we call today retrofuturism, but things we're still living with today. Um got had its roots in the 39 world's fair so <clears throat> brian i had uh, if, if i remember right the columbian exposition in 1893 which i always sort of think of and uh, you know correct me if you disagree but that's sort of to me the first of the the first of the modern world's fairs but uh it was something like 25 percent of the u.s population came through those gates in chicago in 93 do you have any idea what the what the numbers were like for the new york fair in 39 Oh gosh, I did at one point. Uh, actually, I ha I have the Wikipedia article up right now. It Excellent. says 40, 45 million. Wow, which was a pretty big uh, percentage of the population in nineteen thirty nine and forty. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I agree with you about the Columbian Exhibition, uh, or was it Exposition? Um, well, it was Exposition, but that that would have been that was also very important. It would have been the first time that a lot of people would have seen things like electric lights, and right. uh, probably. Um, internal combustion engines, although they hadn't been harnessed for automobiles yet. But um, that was also an important one. But okay, it, I, I, would, the, I, I would even jump in uh, and, dis, and disagree and go back even further. I would go with the Philadelphia Centenary Exposition of uh, 1876, where people were introduced uh, to things like uh, repeating telegraphs and uh, Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. Uh, we also saw a large uh, demonstrations of uh, reciprocating engines, uh, advances in steam that had not been, you know, I mean, we had the, we had the, the locomotive, but applying it to uh, major industries for doing things like uh, uh, tamping and crimping and, and all kinds of metal work that uh, hadn't been used before in, at, at those uh, 
at those levels. It, I mean, maybe that, maybe not from an agrarian to an industrial, but it, it was showing the hints of where technology was leading us. I'm not sure what the uh, what the percentage of people running through Philadelphia was in the 1876, but uh, we do have a we do have a, a long American history of showing off the future. And uh, well, you two guys have just totally invalidated the entire point of my <laughs> book. So I, I appreciate you for jer- jerking that rug out from under me. Thank you. But, uh, no, I, all Go good ahead. points and all, all, all fair. Um, there's also a there's a, um, a sadness to the 39 World's Fair because everybody knew what was coming. There were there were countries that couldn't attend the World's Fair, couldn't set up their pavilions because they'd already been taken over by Nazi Germany. You know, Czechoslovakia intended to have a World's Fair, but by 1939 there was no Czechoslovakia. Um, so there's this sort of uh, Yes, we're celebrating the world and peace and in prosperity and progress, but at the same time, everybody knew that uh, things were going to get a lot worse before they got better. So there's there's this real um, sadness looming over the whole event too that I think um, that I think is reflected in the in the Rocketeer movie. You know, the first thing we see is Howard Hughes talking about Howard Hughes wants to use these jetpacks for peace. The army wants to use them for war. Everybody knows there's a war coming. And um, these are the arguments and discussions people were having in the United States at, at the time. I was trying to find out if there was an actual connection between Hughes and uh in the 1939 fair. And I don't see, I, I haven't been able to find a, a direct link, but I would think that Hughes would be the kind of a guy that would be looking at the future. He was always at the front end of, uh, at least for uh, aviation and aeronautical engineering. Uh, he saw a little bit further into the future than others did of his time. I think. I agree with you. I, I'm not aware of anything Hughes did uh, in relation to the fair, but uh, I'm, I, I'll, he would have been perfect for it. He would have been a perfect fit. Would you compare him to an Elon Musk? I, I, I'm I'm not sure if he's that far, you know, far ahead on things, but he he did seem to want to new, use new alloys, new shapes, new uh, uh, engine types, and uh, a firm believer in uh, in research as well. I mean, he was rather involved with uh, building high speed wind tunnels and stuff like that. Sure, I think that's a fair comparison, and and you know, stretch it further. Uh, they're both masters of public relations. Uh, they're they're you know very. Um, flamboyant personalities and and they make sure everybody knows their name i would agree right, yeah absolutely and of course uh, right around this time at least that this is taking place too you had howard hughes you know working on movies working on yeah. uh, hell's angels and and things like that Don, uh well hell's angels really would have been the first one um and that that being an arm of that sort of public relations thing but also you know also uh, a hobby and yeah. a great way to meet women apparently <laughs> well sure yes. But um, uh, before we get off the fair, too, I wanted yeah. to, to talk a little bit, uh, take another direction and talk a little bit about the director, Joe Johnston, who who is obviously a fan of the 1939 World's Fair. Uh, and and long after the Rocketeer, he was hired to direct the movie Captain America, the first Avenger, the very first Captain America movie, uh, primarily because of the look and feel he'd, he'd established on the Rocketeer. And... Uh, Captain America doesn't have a 1939 World's Fair, but it has a 1943 Stark Expo, which looks exactly like <laughs> sort of an amalgam of the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs, which were held in the same site in, in Flushing, Queens, uh, or Flushing Meadows, Queens. Um, there's there's, there's a, an interesting cinematic through line from The Rocketeer uh, through Joe Johnston and then into all of the Marvel movies that have come out in the last 10 
11 years, however long it's been. Uh, the first thing we see in Captain America is is Steve Rogers and Bucky going through this fair, which looks exactly like the 39 World's Fair. It has the same themes of hope and progress and technology and, and uh, all of that in the shadow of World War uh, we later in other movies through the Iron Man movies we see a Stark Expo '74, which looks exactly like the real World's Fair of '64. There's a Stark Expo of 2011, uh, which I think in the real world, World Fairs is kind of uh, run out of gas by 2011. But Stark Expo 2011 looks pretty like a pretty good time. Um, so Joe Johnston kind of had a hand in taking what uh, must be one of his favorite topics is, is it is mine, this 1939-40 World's Fair, uh, establishing, using in the Rocketeer, using exactly the same ideas and the same themes in Captain America, and then other filmmakers took that and run with it through Iron Man. I think it's just a really interesting thread of about, uh, you know, 25 years of, of film history there. Yeah, yeah. and he, he's very much interested in the world on edge. There's a there's an edge quality. You know, you are as you were saying it was it was peacetime, but war was obviously coming. Uh, and we're, we're seeing in the Rocketeer, we're seeing the edge of something else. We're, we've we've been. I mean, we're going to be going back from watching uh, Howard Hughes burning up this folio, back to uh, the interior of uh, uh, Bigelow's hangar, where we're seeing a World War One era biplane. Uh, parked in the back and that that's kind of a you know the previous world before we're looking at the world war one era and now we're going to get into the world of monoplanes in in the case of uh cliff and pv we're going to get into the world of rockets so that's uh, a really neat actually that's a really neat thematic thing you just pointed out there that that we're seeing right there in that movie in that scene in that very hangar we're seeing the transition uh from you know old old planes held together with glue to uh, you know what would be in a few years uh, fighter jets and stuff. Um, I mean that's that's what the Thirty Nine World's Fair was all about. Thirty Nine World's Fair was going from uh, you know uh, horsepower, literal horsepower, to um, giant diesel locomotives and and uh, you know huge finned Chevys, things like that. <laughs> and you know, yeah, for, totally. for the record, Brian, I, uh, um, I I don't like to speak for Jim, but I'm, I'm just going to arbitrarily. Um, Neither one of us uh, invalidated your thesis whatsoever with whatever happened to the world of tomorrow. I, I, I had no hard feelings. I, oh, I know. And I'll, but kidding aside, I, I do think you really hit it when you talk about that 39 fair as that was the, to me, that's still the crescendo of the fairs. I've got affection for the 62 fair, having lived a lot of my life in the Seattle area. Love the 64, 65 fair going back to New York. But I, I think everything just peaked at, at 39. It was the most optimistic in the face of the biggest challenge and it was uh it, it just seems like it was that perfect combination of just absolute utter looking ahead and we're afraid of what's about to happen but but we know that uh that our minds can sort of give us better lives and lead us through all of this yeah i think that's exactly it and, and, you know, that's a spirit of optimism that uh, I think Joe Jan Johnston really captured in the film as well. Absolutely. He also, he also has a good sense of California in terms of – in a couple of different senses. There's um, – he has an idea of, of the optimism of the time in California and that, that general spirit of invention that we'd see later. I mean, there's, these are two Californians, uh, Hughes and, and uh, Peavy, that are involved in uh, aeronautical engineering. But uh, well, well this, is, this is the same kind of uh, garage mechanics that would uh, build up things like Hewlett Packard and Apple and things like right. that. If this whole uh, uh, nursery 
of, uh, of, of new opportunities and building on other people's successes. I mean, we're going to see later on PV taking Hughes's machine and making it better and improving, getting rid of the parts that killed previous pilots. Uh, I think that that idea of inventiveness that runs through uh, this this whole movie is part is part of Joe Johnson's vision of how how things progress, and uh, and like you said, Brian, it's a very optimistic uh, view of the world. But meanwhile, we're, we're back with uh, financial problems between right. Bigelow and uh, and PV and and Cliff, who uh, just handed him a bill for three hundred dollars worth of gas or three hundred gallons of gas, which is I guess going at maybe twenty cents a gallon back then. I'm not sure. <laughs> Something like that. Would yeah. they be using would they be using hundred octane at the time, Hal? I don't know what they what they ran on back then. No, probably more like eighty seven. Okay. Something like that at at, at this point, but certainly coming up to a hundred very soon. Yeah, I'm so. just wondering if he was saying that we're going to have to sell the GB for scrapped. I was just wondering if they're, if they're going to sell the stuff that's in the instrument panel, that's got to be worth some cash. <laughs> right. Uh, I, was, exactly. I was trying to figure out how much a scrapped GB would be worth. And I would think there's, there's a couple of things in there that you could grab that might make, you know, might make enough money. Although maybe they're just trying to save those for the next uh, aircraft that they buy. Sure. And, and in any case like that, the engine, even just the core of the engine, depending on how many, you know, 45 caliber Thompson slugs have gone through it at that point, <laughs> the engine's got some, some real value. Yeah. Um, I was always interested you talking about uh, finances and I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, Jim, because we didn't talk about this, but I know we think alike, but uh, they're talking about uh, uh, how many gallons. And then, then of course I'm getting a little bit ahead. We're talking about doing the clown act that's worth 15 bucks a shot. So $1938, if you translate that to today, I get uh, just over 250 bucks. Wow. So 250 bucks uh, for each uh, each time you go up and do the clown act. It's, I know a lot of airshow pilots who would be pretty happy to make that kind of money today because <laughs> the airshow pilots are kind of like photographers and things like that 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 people always want to pay them quote unquote in exposure. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, get your name yeah. out there. Car- cartoonists too. We get ah, that a lot. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. And podcasting. <laughs> we'll get into that later. The, uh, uh, yeah, I was I was trying to figure out if he's. I was wondering how much money we're going to have to do some math on this in one of the later episodes when we actually see one of Bigelow's air shows. How many people are there? I'm assuming that they're paying a nickel a piece to be in on it. Right. Uh, so if we just do a, a rapid crowd. Uh, count and just figure out if Bigelow can pay them. I don't know how many, you know, at 20, uh, at 20 people per dollar, he's going to have to have a lot of people seeing the show to pay for, uh, uh, for the two of them in there, especially they can't be the only air act. I would think. Oh, absolutely not. No, they, well, the, uh, you know, we do see later, we see the, the races, um, and, uh, you know, presumably, so there's lots of other airplanes around there that would be appropriate for aerobatic displays and things like that. So now, that's, um, that's another thing that I wondered about during the Bendix Cup and things like that. Do they actually have clown acts going on in the middle of, uh, you know, he, they're talking about drifting into the race lanes. But I can't right. imagine having an air show while you're having a race on the same course. Not at the same time. That would be that would be a pretty big stretch. Um, so although. You know, we'll talk about this. I think when we, yeah. when we get to that that scene, but I'm not sure that uh, uh, I'm not sure that Malcolm, you know, he would take off and he would launch and maybe be ready to go do the clown act, possibly, and and then comes back too early, too soon. But we'll figure that out. Yeah, it'll it'll be there. But I, I think you've identified the only implausible plot point in this movie. <laughs> that might be uh, that might be it. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on that. We, can, we can write that off. That'll be okay. Uh, I, I do like uh, the acting here by the late John Polito, though. He's a fantastic Bigelow. He comes across as a, a bit of a, a used car salesman, and he knows when he has people over a barrel. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, he does that, that thing where he's, uh, you know, when he's suggesting the clown act. His body language there is just spectacular. He dips his chin. He's got that sideways glance. He sort of puts his hands on his vest, and he's... He's just, he knows he's getting oily, you know? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah he's, he's a very gentle Tyrannosaurus Rex pose going on there. He pulls his hands up toward his chest. Yeah, it's just... Uh, well, he's, he's a terrific actor, and it's a, it's a well-done scene because he's sort of the... He's the antagonist, but he's not a villain. He's not a bad guy. He just needs to pay for his gas. Right. Yeah, yeah. He can feel your pain. You know, it's just... <laughs> he just needs to get his money. Or, you know, as we'll find out tomorrow, what the consequences of not doing the clown act would be. Um, but all in all, another another great minute of of many. I wish you know it. I'm sure there was stuff left on the cutting room floor, and I just wondered what the three hour version of this movie is like. There must be a lot of other scenes that we never saw, and I have a feeling that there were there may have been a lot more Bigelow than uh, than just what we see in the movie. I would love to see a lot more Bigelow. Well, and Jim, I'll go on record right now as saying that the the popularity of the Rocketeer Minute podcast will be more than enough to catapult Disney uh, into releasing a super extended special edition Blu-ray. Or at least, at least <laughs> just, one with a commentary track. That would be nice. <laughs> I think we're recording that right now, aren't we? Yeah, yeah this yeah, is it. No. Is it this it? <laughs> Our chance of fame and fortune, yes. I'd like to apologize to all future viewers of the film. <laughs> but man, do I love Disney. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Awesome we yeah. love you, Disney. <laughs> Wow. Well, let's. Uh, we'll find out some more about uh, PV and uh, and Cliff and how they're going to get through the Clown Act uh, alive. Or maybe maybe they'll find a, another plan. We don't know, but we'll have to, we'll have to see. But uh, if you can join us back here tomorrow, we'll, we'll talk about that some more. In the meantime, if you'd like to join our conversation, we are available on a multitude of social media. You can catch us on uh, Twitter at uh, Rocketeer Minute. You can catch us at our Facebook uh, website, the uh, Bulldog Cafe. Look for the Rocketeer's Bulldog Cafe out there on Facebook. We're also available on the great big site, uh, rocketeerminute.com, where you can uh, find uh, links to uh, uh, Amazon, which where, where you can buy uh, copies of the Rocketeer if you haven't seen it already. It's a good time to watch it while we're early in on the, uh, on the podcast. Also, uh, we'll have some links on this particular episode uh, to check out Brian's books. He's got quite a, a library out there with more on the way, I'm sure. But you really need to, to read Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow. It's an excellent treatise on the 1939 World's Fair and where it all led us to. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for that, Jim. Well, thanks thanks for being with us, Brian. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll probably have you on before... Uh, <laughs> before more mayhem occurs <laughs> more things to talk about uh, aeronautics and, and cartooning and rocketeering So, with that, but thanks for being on for this session yeah, many uh, thanks Brian That's anytime anytime. Right. could be tomorrow we'll, see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, 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 leave, we'll leave that a mystery but uh, for the rest of you folks please uh, join us tomorrow here on the Rocketeer Minute so until then over and out Go get him, kid.